Job chapter 17, Job continues and he says, my spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Are not mockers with me? And does not my eye dwell on their provocation? Now put down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is he who will shake hands with me? For you have hidden their heart from understanding. Therefore you will not exalt them. He who speaks flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children will fail. But he has made me a byword of the people. And I've become one in whose face men spit. My eye has also grown dim because of sorrow. And all my members are like shadows. Upright men are astonished at this. And the innocent stirs himself up against the hypocrite. Yet the righteous will hold his way. And he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. But please... Come back again, all of you. For I shall not find one wise man among you. My days are past. My purposes are broken off. Even the thoughts of my heart, they change the night into day. The light is near, they say, in the face of darkness. If I wait for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in the darkness... If I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, you are my mother and my sister, where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? In Job chapter 16 and 17, Job has been pleading For a comforter. In verse 1. He pleads for an intercessor. In chapter 16. Actually in chapter 16 verses 1 through 7. And then he pleads for an intercessor. In chapter 16 verses 18. And then all the way to chapter 17 verses 1 and 2. And then Job pleads for the Lord. To rise up. And defend him against the unjust accusations to defend him in his innocence. And when you see innocence, you could also substitute the word righteousness in verses 3 through 16 in chapter 17. In the last chapter and in this chapter, remember Job is answering Eliphaz. And he has an ever-increasing sense of frustration. In the last chapter, Job accuses the three of being miserable comforters in verses 1 through 4. And if the roles were reversed, Job would most certainly comfort them in verse 5. And Job felt betrayed by both God and his friends in verses 6 through 18 and he cries and he pleads and he trusts that someone is listening in heaven in chapter 16 verses 19 through 22 and now Job calls upon the Lord again to defend his innocence in verses 1 through 9. 
Job enters into an ever-increasing despair. He resigns himself to death as he considers his hopeless situation. And so the source of suffering and the solution to the problem of suffering We can have little things in our mind where we say, well, I know what the cause of suffering is. Satan is the cause of suffering. And we live in a broken world, and that's a cause of suffering. And sometimes people are weird, and that's a source of suffering. And sometimes we're weird, even though we don't always want to admit that. Suffering can can come from a lot of different places and from a number of different directions. And so once again, Job will use a legal metaphor. In this passage, he talks about laying down a pledge in verse 3. It's an idiomatic expression in the ancient world which meant in our culture and society a kind of posting of bail, of putting down money as a pledge or to pay the court costs in order to plead your case. He is basically asking If the Lord will be his advocate, will be his attorney. The same metaphor is used in Psalm 119 verses 121 and 22 to indicate the psalmist's pleading or his request that God would be the advocate. And in that sense, Job is asking, once again, I need you to be my defender. I need you to be my advocate. I need you to be the one who understands my heart and understands my circumstance and will explain to everyone what's going on in my life. And so Job pleads for God to defend and guarantee his righteousness in verses 1 through 4. So again, look in verse 1. My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Again, remember, Job is hurt. He is broken. He is close to death. When he says, my days are extinguished, it's his way of saying, I can see the end drawing near. My days are getting shorter and shorter. My life is about to be extinguished. And even in those difficult circumstances, his friends continue to accuse him. And mock him. And so in verse 2 it says, Are not the mockers with me? And does not my eye dwell on their provocation? Job is deeply grieved over the fact that his neighbors aren't just simply mocking him, but that they quite literally have lost their respect for him. And again, this isn't an issue of pride. This isn't him full of pride thinking, Well, you know, I really, really care about what people think about me. No, this is a man who's lived his life in integrity. You know, there are very few people that you'll come across in your life. You've met maybe one or two in your entire life where you knew that what they said they meant. And once they gave their word, they were going to keep their word. They valued their integrity. It was the most important thing about who they were. And so he's deeply, deeply grieved 
that everyone seems to have completely disconnected from the real him. And so in verse 3 it says, Now put down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is he who will shake hands with me? It's Job's way of saying, Who will defend me? Who will advocate for me? Who will take my side? The pledge, by the way, remember what I said, is a kind of bail or guarantee. And so what Job is basically asking the Lord is to be a surety. In our culture and society, when you can't necessarily get a loan on your own, sometimes you have what's known as a co-signer. Someone who will make good in the event that you are unable to make good. And so in a very real sense, this becomes a picture of someone who cannot plead their own circumstance. And so in this sense, it's a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who basically guarantees us before the Father. You see, if you've ever wondered, or if your neighbor, your friend, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, some well-meaning person or some not-so-well-meaning person decided that they're going to accuse you of something and they're going to ridicule you or they're going to humiliate you and they're going to show what a horrible person you are and what a failure you are and, and what a hypocrite you are. And you can hear the voices of Satan whispering, you're... you're in trouble and God doesn't love you and God isn't going to take care of you. And you cry out and you go, Jesus, you're my Lord. You're my advocate. You're the one who will plead my case. And what Jesus will have to do is say, all of the accusations are pretty much correct. But Lord, I'm asking you to accept them on the basis of my perfect righteousness and my sacrifice in other words, Father, I want, them, I want you to treat them like you would treat me. And your face gets filled with gladness as you realize that the Father is willing to love you and accept you and embrace you. Not on the basis of your goodness or badness, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. And so Job says... Please, I need someone. By the way, does Job in this passage see a Messiah? Does he get a hint of a ransom? When he says, who is he who will shake hands with me? Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, after you've posted bail... Who can I shake hands? This is a sign of mutual trust. It's not just an agreement. In the ancient world, just like now, when you shake someone's hand, it implies that you are going to give to them and they are going to give to you mutual trust. The benefit of the doubt. The basis of a covenant. Job knows that only God can bring about the necessary ransom, the necessary reconciliation. Only God is going to be able to plead his case. Now I want to remind you, remember, I keep telling you, this book is the oldest book in the Bible. Job 
will live. He is going to be exonerated. His circumstances are going to be restored. For those of you who are familiar with the end of the book, Job is not going to live to see the coming of Christ. But Job is going to look hard into the future. And he is going to see into the future with the eyes of suffering. You see, his suffering is going to help him be able to see what becomes very, very difficult to see. You know, sometimes suffering doesn't blur our vision. Sometimes it makes us see clearly. Sometimes suffering makes us see like we've never seen before. And so Job is certainly seeing people, friends, like he's never seen them before. Look what it says in verse 4. For you have hidden their heart from understanding. Therefore you will not exalt them. Job's friends are convinced of Job's guilt. And so when he says, for you have hidden their heart from understanding, it's his way of saying, Lord, Lord, I don't necessarily understand how they cannot understand. How can they be so unjust, so unkind, so vicious? How can they not give me the benefit of the doubt? How is it that they are so completely convinced of my guilt? Job is suggesting, well, wait a minute, uh, Let me just think about this for a minute. Job is suggesting that, well, maybe God has hidden their hearts from understanding. Why? Why, Lord? Why would you do that? Why why would you make it so that they don't clearly and fully understand what I'm going through? And then Job begins to think, is the Lord concealing the truth from them? Is it possible that God is preparing For something else, is he going to prepare to rebuke them? Or is he going to prepare to discipline them? And then Job pleads for God's defense against the unjust accusation. Look at verse 5. He who speaks flattery to his friends... Even the eyes of his children will fail. Job senses that his friends have tried to seek favor with God. And and here's how they're trying to get on God's good side. Job is saying, hey, they want favor with God by condemning me. In other words, Job's friends take what they think is God's position against Job in order to gain favor with God. We might think of it this way. God, you're against Job. And God, since you're against Job, and we're for you, we're also going to be against Job. Job is suggesting that his friends are unkind and unjust in their accusations so that they can be on God's good side, never realizing that their unkindness and their injustice and their accusations are really an invitation not to be rewarded by God, but to perhaps fall into a kind of judgment themselves. As a matter of fact, when he says, even the eyes of his children will fail, 
He is suggesting that their children might even be judged because of the wrongs that they have committed against Job. In what way? When they realize and they see that their parents are involved in every kind of wickedness and accusation and injustice. And isn't that true? That when people are awful and terrible, that in a way it, it, it gives a kind of an invitation for our children and our children's children to be awful. And so Job pleads for God's defense since people were treating him with contempt. Look what it says in verse 6. But he has made me a byword of the people and I have become one in whose face men spit. This is Job's way of saying that he's become the object of ridicule, of contempt, of mockery. And you need to understand part of what's going on here. Job isn't simply being looked at as a sinner, but the worst kind of sinner. By that, I mean the person who most deserved God's judgment. When people began to look at Job and they began to see what was happening to Job, they became a little bit frightened themselves. They would use Job to scare their children. Don't do that. Don't say that. Don't act like that. Do you want to wind up like Job? Can you imagine if you become the object lesson of parents when when parents say to you, hey, would you like to have happened to you what happened to Job? Well, you better just stop that. You better just stop saying this, or you you better stop doing this, or you might act like Job. And spitting in a person's face in every culture is the height of insult. And you've seen images, perhaps. Maybe some of you saw the movie The Passion of the Christ, and you see the mocking and the ridicule and the scorn And you see someone get face to face with someone. I watched a movie recently called The Butler. And it it recounts in part the story of the civil rights of of an African American who who serves as a butler in the White House in the Eisenhower administration. And and during the time of uh, John F. Kennedy and the civil rights marches. And there's a particular scene in this movie where one young white man and several black men and women are sitting at a counter. And you can see the sign that says for coloreds only and you can see the sign that says for whites only and they're sitting at the counter and they just want dignity. They just want respect. They just want to be treated like a regular human being. They just want the rights and the privileges and the dignities that come that human beings should extend to one another. And there's a particular scene in the movie where they toss milk into their face and they toss coffee into their face and one person gets to them face to face and spits in their face and and all of a sudden you're just overcome with the wickedness and the indignity and the absurdity and and what people are capable of when they're frightened by other people 
Job may have thought that his friend's accusations, that that was the worst thing that could possibly happen to him. But the accusations turned to scorn. They became public scorn, adding insult to injury. And here becomes part of the point. Instead of protecting Job and defending Job and caring for Job as their friend, these Three subjected Job to the worst kind of public humiliation. Instead of taking him away from the trash heap. Instead of binding up his wounds. Instead of covering his sores. Instead of taking him away from the prying eyes of curious people. And taking him away from the cruel stares and the accusations. His friends just let it go on. And let it continue. And the people became aware of Job's condition. And they joined in the cruelty. You know, when you read this kind of stuff, it should cause each and every one of us to be careful, to be careful, to be careful, to examine our hearts, to think carefully about what's going on, to think carefully about how we judge people. Remember in the Bible, it says, Who are you to judge another man's servant to his own master? He will stand or fall. Paul writes in Romans chapter 14, verse 4, Yea, he shall be held up, for God is able to make him stand. In another place it says, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you set it not your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to God. So that every one of us will give an account to God. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore. But rather, that no man should put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. In Romans chapter 14, in verses 1 through 13, in James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, the repeated admonition is just be careful. Be careful of what you say and be careful what you do. Be careful what you say to one another. Be careful of speaking evil to one another. So Job pleads for God's defense because of his physical condition. Look at verse 7. He says, my eye has also grown dim because of sorrow and all my members are like shadows. It's Job's way of saying, I've cried and cried and cried His eyes are swollen, almost swollen shut. He can't see because of the continual weeping. He's weeping over and over again. Why is he weeping? He's grieving over the death of his ten children. There is grief upon grief and agony upon agony. There's the agony of the chronic and persistent and unrelenting pain. And in the midst of all of those things, his body's starting to waste away. And so Job pleads for God's defense. 
over his unjust treatment in verse 8. Look what it says. Upright men are astonished at this. And the innocent stirs himself up against the hypocrite. Here's the idea. Job's three friends and the community at large, they would have characterized themselves as good and decent people. Maybe you grew up in a part of the world where you would use terms like, well, those are God-fearing people. Those are good and decent people. God-fearing, good and decent people. By the way, when Jesus is brought before Pilate, and when Jesus is unjustly accused, and when he is tortured and beaten, and then eventually crucified, was it by criminals, prostitutes, riffraff, or by good and decent people, religious people. And so here's the idea. These are good and decent people. But how do you explain when good and decent people torment others? How do you explain the mental and the emotional Abuse. How do you explain the accusations and their continual pleadings? Remember what the three people were doing. Look, Job, there's something really wrong with you. Look, Job, you must have done something really wrong. Look, Job, you must have committed some very serious crimes. Their behavior and their false accusations were proving the point That maybe they weren't as good and as decent and as upright as they claimed to be. So Job will hold on to his convictions. Job will hold on to his integrity. As he holds on to his convictions and he holds on to his integrity, it's not in order to appease his friends and his family. He is weak and he is Hurt. Can you imagine the pain and the pressure? Can you imagine when somebody just keeps saying, there's something really wrong with you. There's something really wrong with you. There's something really wrong with you. And you just are so beaten down and you are so persecuted. You are, you are so marginalized that sometimes inside of you, you feel like maybe if I just give in to the accusations, they'll, they'll just go away. But Job won't do it. And so Job pleads for God's defense to sustain him so that he can maintain his integrity, his strong testimony. It says in verse 9, yet the righteous will hold to his way. And he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. In verse 9, when he says, yet the righteous will hold on to his way, he's talking, again, not about a foreign righteousness. He's talking about an innocence. He's talking about being innocent before God. 
Job won't give in and lie. He will not confess guilt to things that he's not guilty of. So what is Job suggesting? The righteous aren't simply those who exercise an external discipline. This isn't just, this isn't something where you go, look, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to read my Bible, or I'm going to... So, so when everyone is watching, I'm going to make sure that people look at me and they see me doing things that can be perceived as being righteous. In other words, having the veneer of being a good and decent person. Doing all of the things that good and decent people do. And Job begins to understand that goodness and decency isn't just a farce that you participate in, in an outward show of propriety, but that there, there has to be something deep and personal where in the deepest part of your heart and in, in, de- in the deepest part of your soul, there's a goodness and a decency, an internal integrity. Remember what's happened. Everything has failed. Everything has fallen apart. His children are gone. His job is gone. His servants are gone. His savings are gone. Job feels alone, alienated, attacked, exhausted. But look what it says. Yet the righteous will hold on to his way, and he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. Here, clean hands means innocence. He's going to be stronger and stronger. He's asking the Lord to defend him, and he's asking the Lord to give him strength and strength and some more strength so that he can hold on to his righteousness, so he can hold on to his innocence. And here, righteousness might include not just fearing God and shunning or avoiding evil, but something way more. Remember how we started the book. If you go all the way to the beginning of the book and you read the opening verse of the opening chapter, remember what it says. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and shunned evil. Again, The idea being caring deeply about what God thought and avoiding evil. But Job is saying something even more. It isn't good enough to just fear God and avoid evil. In order to fear God and avoid evil, there has to be a fundamental change that takes place inside of your heart where you are a different person. Not just a person who externally acts like a good and decent person, but someone who's fundamentally, profoundly, personally changed from the inside out. And so when Job says, help, he's asking God to help them. Look what it says. Hold his way. Again, McKenna writes almost poetically, he's hanging on the last thread of meaning in his life. McKenna describes Job's loneliness. He says, 
here's a picture of a man who's holding on. He's holding on by a single thread. He says, Job's loneliness comes in two forms, existential and essential. Existential loneliness is to be cut off from all human relationships. It's devastating, but not fatal. Essential loneliness, however, is to be cut off from God without hope. When this happens, life loses its meaning. Job comes close to essential loneliness. Only a shred of faith remains, but it is enough to keep him miserable, which in itself means that life still has meaning, unquote. In other words, it's his way of saying, Job is holding on for dear life. He's holding on by a thread. He's not going to allow his circumstances and suffering to change his view of God or of essential goodness. And so Job pleads for God's defense since his friends lack the skills to comfort him. Look what it says in verse 10. But please come back again, all of you, for I shall not find one wise man among you. It's Job's way of saying a little tersely, a little with a little bit of anger, and I'm thinking justified anger. He, he's launching a direct challenge to his friends. Come back when you have something on me. Let me help you understand what he's saying. But please come back again, all of you, for I shall not find one wise man among you. The idea being Job is challenging them to, to launch an investigation, to hone their arguments, to expose whatever fault that they might be able to find in him. If they're so sure of their accusations, if they're so sure of these things, then don't you think that they should be able to prove them? They keep accusing Job of being wicked. Well, where's your proof? Job is saying. Where's your proof? Where's the evidence? Job calls his friends unwise. For I shall not find one wise man among you. Here's part of the issue, I think. Even if Job's friends... Find some little known sin or unknown sin in his life, they lack the wisdom and the discernment to properly identify Job's faults. You know, it's again that kind of haughty expression when people say, I know what's wrong with you. I. I I know what's wrong with you. Really? Really? You can look inside my heart? You can peer inside my soul? You know exactly what's going on inside of me? Job is basically saying there's no one with enough talent to find baseless faults and cruel accusations No matter how hard they look. Because it's not true. And so Job pleads for God's defense. Because time is slipping away. Life is short. 
The days are temporal. Look at verse 11. My days are past. My purposes are broken off. Even the thoughts of my heart. It's it's Job's way of saying, Lord, I need your help. I need your help because my time is short. My plans are ruined. My desires are shattered. Unfulfilled. He's basically saying, my good days are gone. And the night days are short. And there's only two things that I have to look forward to. Darkness. And death. Those are the things that are on my horizon. Job has endured tragedy. And again, I need you to once again ground yourself in reality. Do the vast majority of people suffer like Job suffers? No. Thank, thank God. Thank God. This is a privilege that's reserved for a very, very, very few. And you might be thinking, I'm hoping I'm not one of those guys. But again, what's even more disturbing is that those who call themselves friends are making a concerted effort to crush, to squeeze, to snuff out that little tiny flicker, that flame of hope that's burning inside of Job. There's still a little candle of hope. And so Job pleads for God's defense as his friends have perverted the truth. That's what it means in verse 12 when it says, They change the night into day. The light is near, they say, in the face of darkness. Who changes the night into day? It's Job's accusers. How do they change the night into day? Remember their continual counsel. Repent, Job. Repent, Job. If you will repent, Job, darkness will become light. Repent, Job, you are in darkness and you will continue in darkness until you see things our way. Do you understand what's happening? Their accusation is untrue and unfounded. It's always untrue and unfounded when a person calls night, day, and day, night. People may play word games. You know, black is really white, and white is really black. Okay, I'll play your game. What do you mean? Well, you know, black is really the absence of color. And light is the mechanism whereby you see color. And they will twist and pervert and distort and, and, and insist that right is wrong, that good is evil. They did this by insisting that Job was guilty when he's in fact innocent. Job desperately needs the Lord to defend him since the Lord knows the truth about Job. Job says, Lord, it looks to me like people have abandoned the truth. Lord, you know the truth. But Job still struggles. He's still struggling in all of this. 
wondering why God would even allow all of this to happen. And so Job pleads for God's defense since he's on the very, very edge, the very verge of losing hope in verses 13 through 16. Look what it says. If I wait for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in the darkness, if I say to corruption, you're my father, and to the worm, you're my mother and my sister. Job's final comments are filled with a kind of surreal hopelessness and despair. Job wonders about hope. What hope is there? What hope is there if all he has to look forward to is the grave and darkness? And when you see, if I make my bed in darkness, he's talking about extinction. The psalmist writes in Psalm 139 verse 11, If I say, surely the darkness will cover me. And the light around me becomes night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. For darkness is as light to you. The psalmist says, when the sun isn't coming up, and when you're surrounded by darkness, and you can't see that little tiny ray of hope. Keep looking. Keep holding on. Corrie ten Boom's family hid Jews in World War II. She wrote, no matter how deep our darkness, or no matter how deep our darkness, he is still deeper still. It was her way of saying, no matter how dark and bleak and inky Black, the absence of light and the absence of hope, no matter how deep the darkness goes, there's a real God and he can go deeper. He can go deeper than the deepest darkness. It was her way of holding out hope. And in verse 14, when Job says, If I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, you are my mother and my sister. In this case, corruption I think you know what it means. It's the process of decomposition when you lay a body in a grave. And remember when you were a kid, you would sing the song. The worms crawl in, the worms crawl out, the worms play a pinochle on your snout. They eat your eyes, they eat your nose, they eat the jelly between your toes. Your body is decomposing. It's, it's wasting away. I know you're going, we never sang that. Man. You must have had a dark childhood. (laughs) Corruption is decomposition. The worm is the agent of the disintegration of the body. Job is in effect saying, what do I have to look forward to? I'm getting ready to die. They're going to throw my disease-riddled body into a grave and what's left of me is just going to decompose where's my hope as for my hope who can see it where then is my hope what is Job's hope is Job's only hope his present circumstance is Job's hope The certainty of death. Do you understand what Job is saying? Job is wondering. 
if I die, will my hope die? If I die, will my love for the Lord die? If I die, will my integrity cease? In verse 16 he says, Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? The gates are the place where death lies. Here, Sheol means everything that happens after you die. It's the grave. Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? Here's the idea. Job is certain that death is near. Job is certain that the gates of Sheol, this is a poetic expression for the entryway or the gateway to death. If Job is going to die, will hope die with him? Shall we have rest together in the dust? The idea being, will both Job and his hope, which are about to turn to dust, dust you are, the Bible says, to dust you will return. What's going to happen? What's going to really happen? Again, one Bible writer says, quote, The trials and the tribulations of Job have made him miserable. His friends are a great disappointment, but Job clings to his innocence. Job is prepared to die, strong in the conviction that he's been true to God and that God will preserve him in his integrity. You know what's really interesting again? Job doesn't know it. Remember, remember, remember? Is Job familiar with the first two chapters of the book? Not at this point. Has Job even read the last part of the book of Job? Death is a little bit further than even Job anticipates. Job doesn't know it! But there's more. God has more. He has more in store for Job. Have you ever come to a circumstance in your life where you thought, my life is over, my marriage is over, my job is over, this part of my life is over, there's something, you know, you think that you've come to some sort of dramatic conclusion, some end of the line, you don't have the ability to see into the future, you had no idea that God had something left for you. Job doesn't realize it at this point, but God has something left for Job. Remember, Job's been singled out for testing. Not because Job has done something wrong, but because Job has done something right. It's such a foreign idea in our culture, in our society. You mean I could get in trouble for doing the right thing? The good thing? The decent thing? The God-honoring thing? Job is being tested because of his godliness. Job is being tested because of the excellence of his character. And he's holding on for dear life. 
You see, there's a part of Job that's ready to give in to the pain and the misery and the disappointment. But there's something else inside of him. There's just this small spark, this little flame that begins to burn inside of his heart where he longs for life. And, I, and he's longing not just for life, but abundant life. He's longing for the kind of life that he had before the trials came on him. We all live in the shadow of death. We all live with the certainty that we will die. The atheist, the agnostic, the believer, and the unbeliever all live with the certainty that their life will come to an abrupt end. And in moments of reflection, we wonder what will happen after we die. And we understand that the Bible teaches that death isn't the end of personal existence. That the Bible's repeated promise is that there is life. Not just simply existence, but there's real life. There's life. There's life. There's life. After you breathe your last breath. After you close your eye for the final time. When your heart forever ceases. You know, in the ancient world, there were some people who believed that Sheol, or the grave, or the underworld, was this place of dark shadows and impersonal beings and spiritual nothingness. Dr. James Dobson was right when he wrote, quote, The final heartbeat for the Christian is not the mysterious conclusion to a meaningless existence. It is rather... The grand beginning of a life that will never end, unquote. Job believed that death would end his misery. But did Job really believe, did he really believe, did he really believe that it would end his existence? You know, in chapter 16, what we saw earlier, he described death as the place of no return. In the next chapter, in chapter 18, verse 14, he describes death as the king of terrors. But there will come a point when Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and I will see him Face to face. Whatever questions, whatever doubts that Job may have had, they're answered in the person of Jesus. We sang the song, Resting in Your Promise. I will rest within the knowledge. That you care. I put my trust in you. Deep within the darkness. Though my enemies surround me. I will not fear. I put my trust in you. And when I don't know what to do. I will fix my eyes on you. You're my defender. I hide my hope in you. You are the loving arms 
my broken heart can run to. Can you imagine if Job's friends and everyone in his community gathered together and comforted him and eased his burden and washed his wounds and sang this song? I will remember there is nothing you can't do for you are God You are good, and I surrender. You are my defender. No matter how deep, no matter how dark, no matter how painful the accusations, no matter how wicked the insult, the injury, when you just want a little respect and you want just the simple dignity that should be afforded every human being who's made in the image of God, just remember. Remember what's happening to Job. Be quick to offer assistance, comfort, and hope. Be very, very careful with judgment, accusation, and injury. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look at his life. And we see in it a glimpse of our own. That sometimes we face difficulties Sometimes we experience setbacks. Sometimes we become the object of other people's hatred, prejudice, ridicule. Heavenly Father, we understand that there are people who think that we are deluded because we believe that a real Jesus loves us and that he really died on the cross for our sins, that he gives us forgiveness and hope, that he provides for us comfort, even in the certainty that each and every one of us will one day come to the same valley of the shadow of death. But the invitation is extended to us that we've need not fear any evil. Lord, we know that you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And we sing the song. You're strong when I am weakest. You're the peace that passes everything that I see. And so I'll put my trust in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. He's your defender. You sing it, sing it like you mean it.